Welcome to this new episode of Becoming a Post-Growth Planner, Challenges and Obstacles to Changing Roles and Practices. Today, I'm especially honored to welcome Yvonne Ryden with me from UCL London, Chair of Planning, Environment and Public Policy. Thank you very much, Christian. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. So you have quite some history in engaging with post-growth and planning, but what brought you to think about post-growth and planning? Well, my focus was not so much on post-growth per se, but on how to plan without growth. And it was based partly on sort of the analysis of how dependent on growth planning in many areas was and how when you visited many other areas, that just was not relevant. That just was not relevant to their lived experience. So I was thinking about how can this suggest an alternative way of planning? Um, one that doesn't assume that growth will actually happen. And I was thinking of it as something that could possibly coexist with more growth dependent planning so that, you know, growth dependent ha planning happened in areas where it was seen to work. And there are conditions around what could make growth dependent planning acceptable. Or perhaps it could incrementally build to be a challenge um, to the existing modes of planning and to become something quite else. But I, I think I slightly distinguish between a, a view of post-growth planning as a societal transition, which I know, you know several uh, of your speakers on your podcast have, have presented it as. Um, what I have is a slightly more pragmatic approach, uh, which is really trying to find ways to plan without growth. Yeah, you wrote a book about that in 2013, Future of Planning Beyond Growth Dependence. Which experiences did you have, did you make when working on this book? It was an interesting exercise. Um, it was an attempt to make the argument about the way that planning has become not even growth oriented, but growth dependent, dependent on planning for achieving its aims and the problems of that. Um, I very first presented it at Oxford Brookes University, where I was really trying to say that planning should move away from its emphasis on shiny new developments, that it should value existing ordinary places, that it perhaps should actually develop a, a different aesthetic about what was a good place. Um, and I have to say, there was a little bit of bafflement with that. <laughs> um, after the book was published, I, I did present it in the Netherlands, um, where I think they felt that in a country with a strong welfare net, this was unlikely to be a problem. This was a, you know, a rather particular problem for, for neoliberal Britain, you know, post Thatcher and all the governments after that. And that if you had a strong welfare state and a proactive uh, planning system, then it could actually deal with these problems of, of low growth areas effectively. But I think since then, I think it's become more widely appreciated that neoliberalism has spread, that planning is increasingly less powerful as a, a state-led activity, as a democratic activity, that we're increasingly dependent on market-led development and private sector propositions. I think that raises problems, you know, that planning is indeed growth dependent. It raises problems both for areas where that form of growth dependent planning happens, but also for all the areas it leaves behind. I think it's become a little bit more accepted as a way of doing it over the, the last decade as a, a sort of standard argument almost. But I was trying to argue this idea that you could have growth dependent planning successfully in some places and something else in other places. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a tendency within planning circles to look for the way of doing planning. I don't think there is one way of doing a planning that's appropriate for all forms of location. But I do also think, um, and as we record this, it's the week where the IPCC have issued one of their latest reports, 
in which they make a very strong case for the environmental consequences of growth. You know, if you're going to have even some degrees of growth, then you are going to be running up against the challenges of climate change. And I suspect this is something bigger than planning can deal with. Um, and our political, the political unwillingness of our regimes to deal with this I means that I suspect the consequence in the future is that we'll do some growth dependent planning, but of necessity planning is going to find itself dealing with a lot more adaptive work in response to climate change impacts. So if we look at today, there's maybe even a societal necessity to really think beyond growth, especially yeah. with looking at climate change and, and so forth. But if you then look at contemporary debates in the UK or also elsewhere, you also have experience in Sweden recently. So do you recognize some change towards growth independent planning or where is it? In a sense, the planning pro profession is, is somewhat split. And the students that, that we train um, either go into the public sector or the private sector, where they are very much oriented towards planning for new urban development almost of necessity they're planning for growth because that is the problematic they're actually facing. And they're trying to, to limit the impacts of that, the negative impacts of that. And in environmental terms, there's big question marks about exactly how effective that can be. Um, you know, the ideas of green growth, I think, have been shot out the water. Circular economy is now being debated as one way of trying to minimize those negative impacts of new development. But I would say that the, the really interesting things are happening with the planners that find their way into the third sector, um, civil society, social economy organizations. And that's, I think, where the really interesting things are happening, where planning can work together with civil society and the social economy, use the power of the state to support these initiatives. So I would point to a lot of um, initiatives such as community shops, food banks, community kitchens, urban agriculture, sports associations, and all the social and care services that are provided outside market mechanisms. And that could be through subsidy, through volunteering, through gifting, through exchange. But I would also point to the importance of maintaining what you might call monetized economic activities, say through fostering local SMEs, smaller businesses, and particularly cooperative businesses as well that are within that social um, economy sector. So I think planning needs to think about how it can support these kinds of activities through its influence on how space is organized, how land is used. It really also needs to focus away from just managing new urban development into areas, um, into matters of area management, of community development. What does this mean for the roles of public sector planners? Do you recognize kind of a way how they can change in order to enable more of this to happen, to be, su be supportive of civil society planners and of other ways of uh, also mm -hmm. moving towards post-growth? Well, I think at a more um, sort of systemic level, at the level of, of the local authority, there are things that can be done in terms of providing land, providing property, protecting land and property that's in community use. Um, but particularly perhaps using public land ownership, which maybe is something we'll come back to. Um, but I think it's also about community development, community engagement, beyond just, you know, the kind of community engagement about what do you think about this new mm -hmm. development? I think uh, perhaps America has a stronger tradition of this kind of community engagement that has possibly even isn't seen as planning in a British context. But I think you could move into that more. We do have a little bit more of this in Scotland, where we have a stronger community planning movement there. Is it then maybe also involving a sometimes stepping back, listening, uh, waiting for the moment to support? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's no way if you're if you if planning is working with civil society and social economy, it, it needs something to work with. It, mm. There has to be some, you know, some other side, um, some other hand to hold in a sense. Mm. So areas that have so strong civil society that have the elements of social economy, then local authorities can work with that and build that. Um, I think you can see that a little bit in the community wealth building movement, such as you find in Preston, you know, where the local authority has made very strong attempts, partly to work with bigger mm -hmm. anchor organizations, but also to build small cooperatives, mm -hmm. to build that cooperative sector in order to fill certain kinds of gaps. So, um, but you can only do that when you've already got something, um, the seeds are there, as it were. Yeah, back in two, 2013, you already pointed to the importance of recognizing also land and public land ownership, which is some also foundation of planning, I would say. How do you see land and land use planning as also a foundation of post-growth and post-growth planning? Well, I agree with you. I, I think that public and community land ownership is the foundation of any effective planning. And one of the big problems that we've had in the latter 20th century going into 21st century has been the erosion of public land and public land banks. That means that we are reliant on private land markets for bringing forward sites for development. And that builds pressures for say, higher density development, uh, perhaps beyond uh, the level at which is acceptable. Um, and higher value land uses, which I think is very problematic because there are many land uses out there that are incredibly socially valuable, but don't actually achieve very high market kinds of prices. So I think that uh, one of the big things to re regret is the decline in that kind of public and community land ownership. And I would like to see a program of protecting the public sector landed assets that there are, of passing more and more land and assets into community organizations ownership. And I think Scotland, again, is a very good example of that because they have a strong tradition of community ownership and they're putting money and uh, legislative force and simplify contractual models behind that to enable that to happen. What hinders then planners to take up more of that to um, uh, maybe think well, more in such a post-growth direction? Yeah, I think what we have is a kind of hegemony uh, in planning thought, not so much in the academy, but in the broader world of, of practice and part of the academy that the, says that the solution to most areas problems is to attract new development and then negotiate for a share of the profits from that development. You know, and trust that the new development then leads to this kind of supposed virtuous cycle of attracting more inward investment. I find that storyline in almost all plans. It's very rare to find a plan that doesn't have an element of that. And, you know, we have a widespread critique of why that might be a bad idea from the point of view of gentrification, from the point of view of environmental resources and climate protection. But the other thing about it is that in many, many places, that storyline cannot possibly work. It's a fantasy, essentially. And I think we need to challenge that storyline and then develop alternative ones. And I think we have to be a bit careful how we, we navigate with community and stakeholders on this, because there is no point trying to impose an alternative vision. It has to be something that is always also deemed desirable. But I think the lack of being able to visualize an attractive alternative is a real barrier 
to moving away from growth dependent planning. The debate is somewhat more academic so far and with some entry points to practice. You have also organized the reading discussion group around post-growth uh, over the past half year, including some of your PhDs and others. Do you see major take-home messages from that, also maybe in a European perspective? Yeah, this, this was a, a, a great solace in the last six months. And thank you for joining in with this, Christian. It was just a small little online reading group reading a, a series of, of articles around growth and planning and trying to rethink it. And it, it's, um, it's been a wonderful series of debates that have built. And I think the, the thing that came home to me, which I hadn't really thought about enough before, is the important, uh, importance of fiscal and other policies at the national level in setting the context for these local initiatives and experiments that like the ones I've pointed to before and many others have pointed to, they're fantastic. And you can talk about the need to foster those initiatives where they actually occur. But I think it became very clear that they would find limits if there wasn't a satisfactory national context in place. And so we've been discussing things like universal basic income, like the importance of a strong welfare net, like public sector support of patient investment in an area. And so I think the thing that I've taken home from this reading group is the need to actually work out the kind of necessary connective tissue uh, between these local initiatives that are going on and that we want to foster and we want to encourage, um, but also the necessary framework that's gonna to have to be put in place at a more national level. And I think that's an interesting task to, to think more about and to work on. Do you understand planners are well equipped to understand bits of these uh, connections, these wider forces, or is there also some missing piece that planners need to develop as a knowledge, as a yeah. skill? I, I, th I think there is missing. I think that they, while there's a huge amount of strength in ideas of collaborative planning and governance, and it's, it's led to a kind of shift in the way in which we engage with stakeholders and communities, I think it also sometimes seems as if, you know, do that right and everything else will fall out. I think that planners to some extent aren't economically literate enough mm -hmm. to, because the kind of policy we're talking about here, policies about income, about investment, about financial support, they are essentially economic policies. And I think a de greater degree of economic literacy um, might be what's needed in order to actually to build this connection with a debate that otherwise will be dealt with by macroeconomists, which is no good. Perhaps economic literacy, I think, is what I would point to. And that's what I'm currently trying to work on, trying to understand different ways of conceptualizing local economic development in a way that moves away from mainstream economic analyses, which are very private sector oriented, but connect in with these kinds of debates within planning. So we already move a bit towards the future now. So uh, you're talking about your current research, which of this research leads to post-growth pathways or alternatives. So uh, what could you offer or what do you see as an alternative? It's early days. This is an mm. ongoing research project that has been slowed by the pandemic. Um, but I'm working on a number of case studies of low growth areas, trying to understand the ways in which they work, trying to understand why, how an alternative model of local economic development could be relevant in that kind of area. And what I'd hope to do is bring that together in a, in a book that will be a successor to uh, my book on growth dependence. I've also got a few PhD students working on this in social economy in Korea and sort of social economy, small business uh, in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. 
And what I would hope is that uh, when this pandemic finally abates, that perhaps we could organize a conference that would showcase some of my case studies, some of the PhD students' work, and some of the other work that's going on in this kind of area. My hope for 2023. Uh, that would be wonderful, full buy-in from my side, but let's say Thank from pre preliminary ideas, Korea, Jamaica, so two rather different uh, contexts. Are yeah. there some similarities in terms of how growth is embedded? Well, the, the Jamaican student hasn't hasn't started yet, um, or the student on Jamaica hasn't started yet, So, but she's going to be... I think the interesting thing about both of them is the overlap between social economy organizations and small business and how there isn't always a very clear divide between these two. Um, and that takes you from the world of civil society into the world of the economy as is conventionally, the world is divided up. Building those connections, I suspect is something very interesting to see there. The social economy has quite a strong place in Korean urban regeneration, um, which is why it's interesting to look at. Um, and it's engaged in quite a wide variety of activities, including things that we would think of more public sector, but things that are also more private economy. So I think it's all about breaking down that, that barrier, that divide. Yeah. Do you expect also outcomes there, how to engage differently as a planner with uh, civil society, with economic actors, in that, especially in this kind of global comparison? Yeah, I think we, I mean, planning planners are different, obviously, in different locations. So I think we have to be very sensitive to what is appropriate in the different kind of contexts. Uh, but hopefully, yeah, I mean, if we can bring in more different kind of case studies with a, a, you know, a, a stronger conceptual understanding of what it is that we're looking at in these different places, then there might come out of it a, a new way of, of conceptualizing the role of the planner mm -hmm. uh, beyond conventional ideas, which I think would be helpful. Back, let's say, to the European context where we are mm -hmm. right now, uh, what would you advise a planner today to take more courage to use post-growth thinking in daily practices and daily routines? I think the important thing to remember here is that decisions about how towns, cities and rural areas change are political ones. And by that, I don't just mean in terms of the impacts on different social groups, but because they are decisions that ultimately need to be taken in the political sphere, uh, involving not just stakeholders, but centrally elected politicians. One of the courageous things that planners can do is to try to persuade politicians and the key stakeholders that growth and that encouraging more development is not always the answer. You know, that it may bring undesirable consequences and there may be issues that not all of those can be dealt with at the local scale. But I think the more challenging thing is that the planners could do is sometimes, you know, prick the balloon of that fantasy. You know, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. We can draw the plan up. It will look like a good practice plan because it will have certain tropes in it that, you know, people regard as being, you know, a, a strong planning narrative. But someone needs to say to the, to the politicians very often, this is not going to work here. You know, so this plan is just going to sit on the table and become an excuse for allowing whatever private sector development turns up to go ahead. And that isn't really planning. You know, that is that's just letting the private sector plan and having a fantasy plan. And I think that takes a lot of courage, a lot of courage to say that. But sometimes maybe I, when I read plans in places, I think, really? Do you really think that's going to happen? I, I wonder what, what, why didn't the planners say that to their council, to their councillors? Uh, do you see further allies for planners in that? So it seems like planners against councillors. Are there others who 
No, it's also. not against. I think this is about, I mean, planners are there because of their professional knowledge, because they spend a lot of time thinking about how to synthesize a whole number of different issues to achieve desirable outcomes. You know, that they are wanted for their profession. I think sometimes, certainly in the UK, professional practice gets almost reduced to how does this comply with our national policy, our national planning policy framework, you know, or how can you commission a consultancy to draw up a plan, you know? I, I think in a sense, planners need to take back a little bit more of their own professional expertise and say, look, I know what I'm talking about, and I know this plan that we're drawing up here, you know, it might be a standard planning narrative, but I don't think it's going to work. Um, it's not about being against the councillors. I think it's about, yeah, speaking truth to power, you know, from the, the depth of their own expertise. Post-growth planners should be a bit more conflictual, political. They need to perhaps have the um, have their own convictions mm -hmm. in this regard. Yeah, so that we are almost moving towards the end then. So before we finish, um, I would like to ask you to finalize a sentence. Post-growth planning is? Post-growth planning is a major challenge. It's a call to arms for rethinking planning systems, policies and practices. It may be utopian in many of its formulations, but I think it also maintains an essential critique that we can and should learn from. I'm a bit of a pragmatist, uh, but I realize that even a pragmatist can learn from uh, such utopians, and I seek to do so. Great final sentence. So let's keep it as a call to a call to action also for many others to keep on working on utopias, but also doing what's pragmatically possible tomorrow. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Yvonne, for joining today. Thank you for the opportunity. It was fun.